But this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Psalm 90. We'll be reading Psalm 90 and Psalm 91 as well. Let's listen now to the Word of God, beginning in Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in Your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by Your anger, and by Your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before You, our secret sins in the light of Your countenance. For all our days have passed away in Your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years, and if by reason of strength they are eighty years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of Your anger? For as the fear of You, so is Your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on Your servants. O satisfy us early with Your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which You have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let Your work appear to Your servants and Your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked." Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil 
shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For He shall give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because He has set His love upon Me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him on high, because He has known My name. He shall call upon Me, and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him My salvation." May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing, let's take a look back at the passage that we read from Psalm 91. As we focus our attention on the latter portion of that psalm, verses 14 and following, where it says this, Because He has set His love upon Me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him on high because He has known My name. He shall call upon Me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him My salvation. Now we know from elsewhere in the Scriptures that all of the promises of God to His believing people are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're familiar at all with Paul's epistles, you'll know that as you work through these epistles, doesn't matter which one it is, you're constantly finding references, uh, phraseology and so on, that speak of being in Christ and having things through Christ and because of Christ and, and so on. You see this language, why? Because as Paul says, all of God's promises, all of His many precious promises are yea and amen in Christ. We have everything that we have in Christ and apart from Him we have nothing. And so as we come to Psalm 91, it's no different we need to approach this psalm in that way. And we're encouraged to do so, as we've already reflected upon previously, by the fact that this psalm is addressed specifically to the one who would crush the serpent's head. You see that in verse 13, you shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Now, the Bible was written to make sense. Obviously, different portions of it were written at different times. But even from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the Bible makes clear that the chief enemy of God and His people, the devil, is a deceptive serpent, a cunning serpent, an enemy who tempted and deceived mankind to fall into sin. And God promised a Savior, the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat Satan. Even Satan, who's not only a serpent, but a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And here we find that this particular psalm is addressed to the one who would conquer Satan. That is, 
to Christ, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Israel, the seed of David, uh, the root and offspring of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all those in Him. Romans 16.20 says the believers in Rome through Christ trampled Satan underfoot. So this is directed to Christ and to His people in Christ. And recognizing the context here from Psalm 90 as a wilderness prayer of Moses. and We've seen Psalm 91 placed here strategically in the psalm book, if not written for that purpose, to show the fulfillment, the answer to the prayer of Moses, the man of God. An answer to that wilderness prayer. And so it, it, it has a wilderness flavor to it, a wilderness context. And we know from the life of Christ that He is the second Adam who did battle with Satan and who overcame his temptations not in a lush garden paradise as in the Garden of Eden, but in a wilderness, in the desert. Having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted of Satan. And we have that recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4 and various other places in the Gospels. And so Christ's victory over Satan in this wilderness psalm fits the context of his victory over Satan in his life and ministry as recorded in the New Testament. Not only that, but we see in this psalm a reminder that Christ is not only of the seed of Israel after the flesh, but that he is the head and embodiment of the Israel of God, even throughout both Testaments. He is the true Israel, the embodiment of Israel. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, being tested. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 5 says that God tested them in the wilderness and chastened them and taught them obedience, even as a father teaches his son. Israel is God's firstborn son. Out of Egypt he called his son. We see this reflected in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as Joseph, the son of Jacob in the Old Testament, brought Israel into Egypt, and then God called His firstborn son out of Egypt, even in the early life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Mary's husband, Joseph, the son of Jacob, actually, took the family into Egypt, and out of Egypt, God called His son and brought him back into the promised land to live in Nazareth. And Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. A time of testing in which He learned obedience through suffering as a son. Hebrews 5. Jesus, in so many ways, uh, repeated the experience of Israel throughout His life. So much more could be said. But in that temptation in the wilderness, it's interesting that when Satan tempts Jesus three times, turn the stones into bread, hurl yourself off the roof of the temple and bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. These three temptations that are recorded for us in the Gospels, in each case, the Lord Jesus Christ quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, the passage I just referenced, man shall not live by bread alone, uh, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Also from Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 and 14, and also from verse 16. So Jesus is quoting from wilderness passages, and when Satan seeks to deceive him and distort the Word of God, 
and tempt him to expect angelic protection if he were to heave himself off the temple and deviate from the path of his uh, obedience and service to the Father as our mediator. When Satan seeks to do that, he quotes from a wilderness psalm. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, as we just read. Uh, Speaking of the angelic protection, which would not be given absolutely, but in all your ways, in all the ways God had ordained for him to walk. So we can see here, this psalm points us to Christ every step of the way. And so this evening we're going to be meditating upon it from the standpoint of Psalm 91 uh, in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen how it applies to us. Let's consider how it sets forth Christ and Him crucified. First, we see our Lord's dwelling place. His dwelling place. It's not just the believer who dwells in the secret place of the Most High and abides under the shadow of the Almighty. This reference describes the Lord Jesus Christ as our God-man mediator in His humanity. He dwelt in the secret place with greater intimacy than anyone who ever walked the face of the earth or whoever has since. He abided under the shadow of the Almighty, experiencing divine protection throughout His life and ministry and, and enjoying it and being empowered by it and believing in it and walking in it more so than anyone who ever lived. These verses describe the Lord Jesus Christ. He said of His Father, as it were, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. It's important for us to recognize that in the Christian life, when we say, Colossians 3.3, 3, that our life is hid with Christ in God, that's not just saying something about us, that's saying something about Christ. If our life is hid with Christ in God, what does that say about the life, the perfect humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ? That He dwells in God. Our life dwells with Him in God. In other words, He dwells in the secret place of the Most High. He abides under the shadow of the Almighty in His humanity, flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. He has made a way into that holy presence of God so that we can dwell there with Him. And that's what heaven is. It's dwelling uh, with Christ in God. That's uh, the essence of heaven. And, And there's something of that in the Christian life as well. But this is the dwelling place of Christ and we see it in this psalm and we see it reflecting then upon His life and ministry in the Gospels. So first of all, He trusted God. Verse 2 tells us that the one it's speaking of here can say, in Him I will trust. And we know from Psalm 22 and we know from the Gospels that when Jesus was crucified and hung outside the city, nailed to the cross of Calvary, lifted up for all to see, that His enemies stood around Him, wagging their heads at Him, mocking Him, hurling insults at Him. And it's interesting the way God can cause the wrath of man to praise Him because one of the insults that they brought against Him, one of the accusations, He trusted in God. 
let God deliver him. But that's, in some sense, the worst they could come up with. You know, they're trying to find insults. Well, he's a friend of sinners, and he eats with tax collectors, and he trusted God, and he saved others. Well, uh, these are some of the greatest compliments that we could ever imagine. He saved others. Praise God for that. He trusted God. He's a friend of sinners. He ate with tax collectors. You see, even when they attack him, they cannot help but praise him in that sense. But, But he trusted God. This is so characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ that even His enemies could not avoid confessing it around His cross, even as they attacked Him and insulted Him. Now, when we think of trust, we think of taking refuge. We think of entrusting ourselves, committing ourselves into the hands of God. And immediately our minds are drawn to the cross. When Jesus said, "...into your hands..." I commit my spirit. And he's thinking back of uh, Psalm 31, verse 5. Thou hast redeemed me, O God of truth. But it's this statement, into thy hands I commit my spirit. We think of Christ committing Himself to the Father, into the hands of His Father, on the cross, and uh, giving up the ghost into the hands of of His heavenly Father. But understand this, Jesus didn't simply die that way. In fact, He died that way because He lived that way. Even from the outset, at 12 years old, He comes into the temple. He's about His Father's business. He identifies Himself with His heavenly Father. He serves His heavenly Father. He entrusts Himself, commits Himself to His heavenly Father every step of the way with perfect faith and trust. Listen to what one eyewitness of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ says. 1 Peter 2, verse 23. This is Peter. He observed it firsthand. He says that Jesus, when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. He says that Christ Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. He's saying, I saw these things. I witnessed it. I saw Him. I saw people reviling Him. I saw Him suffer. He didn't threaten. He didn't revile in return. He committed Himself. He entrusted Himself day in, day out, through the conflicts and ups and downs of life. He committed Himself into the hands of God Himself. And because of this, we see the evidence of the the trust and faith of Christ as our mediator. We see it in the absence of sinful fear throughout His life. Now, in Gethsemane, is there a sense in which He was afraid? Yes. And some of the Psalms bring that to our attention. That language is used. And certainly as he's looking into the cup of wrath that he drank so that we could enjoy the cup of salvation this evening, when he looked into it, he says he was deeply distressed, sorrowful unto death. And so insofar as fear is the opposite of hope, where we're anticipating something pleasant that is to come, uh, fear is the opposite of that. Fear, we're kind of anticipating on the negative side, something that's unpleasant, that's on the horizon. Certainly he experience fear in that sense. But there was a complete absence of sinful fear. 
That is the fear that stems from unbelief, not the fear that stems from the common sense human reality of bearing the sins of His people and enduring hell on the cross. Uh, The fact that He felt distress in His soul simply proves that He was flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, true man. Uh, But there was an absence of sinful fear, unbelieving fear. And so Jesus is sleeping, sleeping in the boat while there's a great storm. He's not concerned. And He says to the disciples as they uh, scurry about and and, uh, as they're filled with fear, He says, "Oh, Oh, you of little faith. He's not concerned. He's not afraid. When it came time to set His face toward Jerusalem, Luke tells us, and Isaiah 50 tells us as well, Luke 9.51, Isaiah chapter 54 and following, tells us that He set His face like flint to go to the cross. There was no sinful fear in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see this in our psalm, verse 5, as a result of God's truth and faithfulness being His shield and buckler, as a fruit of His faith and trust, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, the arrow that flies in the day, and so on and so forth. He says, you won't be afraid. And so it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in John 11, when the Pharisees and Sadducees are plotting to kill Him, Uh, They're livid, they're angry, they're raging against Him because He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. They're plotting to kill Jesus. They're plotting to kill Lazarus. Jesus can't walk openly among the people anymore. He is a marked man. They're setting His sights on Him to kill Him. Does He go to the feast in Jerusalem? Not only does He go to the feast, but He rides in on a donkey. And, and, and in that passage, it's such a beautiful thing to see the Lord Jesus Christ victoriously, magnificently, if you can see Him with the eyes of faith, magnificently riding in to Jerusalem as our, the, the captain of our salvation. Uh, but uh, John, 12, uh, John 12, verse 14 and 15, Then Jesus, when He had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. So, at a time when you'd think He would be fearful, He's reassuring us. He's telling us not to fear. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. My friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is so mighty and so fearless and so courageous, more so than anyone that has ever lived, that just the sight of Him, even by faith, even in some sense, visualizing something of what took place on that occasion, it dispels fear from ourselves to know that the captain of our salvation is with us and that He rides forth to accomplish our salvation. And John 18, verse 8, He's surrounded by thugs and uh, this band of uh, armed men in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they threaten him. They threaten the disciples. And he says, whom are you seeking? And, and, And essentially he says, take me and let these go their way. He stands in the gap with courage and fearlessness, the captain of our salvation. He trusted God. He took refuge under the shadow of the Almighty. 
And he sought God as well. We see his dwelling place in the fact that he sought God in prayer in the secret place. He, he dwelt in that secret place on a regular basis. Verse 15 of our text, He shall call upon me and I will answer him. This is at the heart of the life of Christ day in and day out. Morning, noon, and night he found time to pray Time to unburden himself before his heavenly Father. Time to commune and to draw spiritual strength from his Father in heaven. So much so, he spent so much time in private prayer and led his disciples in the same so frequently that when Judas was seeking to betray him into the hands of sinful men and he was trying to think, well, where is he? We're told in John 18, verse 2, that when Jesus and the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that Judas knew the place. Uh, Judas knew the place. John 18, verse 2, Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with His disciples. They often went to this grove of trees to pray privately, to pray together. They were in the secret place. Jesus was in the secret place. And that's how Judas came to betray Him. That's how they found Jesus. Because He was so faithful. Almost you think of Daniel. What got him thrown into the lion's den? That he was so faithful in his prayer life that even at the cost of his own life, he would pray as he was so want to do throughout his life. The same with Jesus, our greater Daniel. He went to the same place. He knew Judas would find him there. He knew it, but he wouldn't cease to to dwell in the secret place and to come before his Father in that place where he would often resort. He sought God. Uh, We're told in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, something of his prayer life, even just prior to his suffering and death. That he in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. He feared God. And in a sinful way feared no one nor anything else. Also, we see his dwelling place in the fact that he loved God. Verse 14, because He has set His love upon me. The Lord Jesus Christ loved His Father. Not not merely from all eternity in the communion and fellowship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but as the God-man mediator, as the Word made flesh, He loved God. He set His love on God. You see, that's, that's, a, that's a powerful way to put it. He has set His love upon me. It was not just a feeling. It was a resolute course of life. It was a priority. It was a desire. It was a thirst, an appetite, a decision. It was all of those things. He set His love upon His Father. And we see the fruit of that in His refusal to deviate from the path of obedience and service as the Father had laid it out for Him in eternity past. Satan saying, well, jump off the temple. Deviate from that way that God has set before you as your way. 
the devil tempting him from these verses in our text and leaving off the tail end of, uh, of verse 11. But Jesus didn't deviate from the way that was set before him because he loved God. John 14, verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. And he's referring there to his death. In the previous verses, he says, the ruler of this world is coming for me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. He says, as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. He went to the cross He saved us from our sins because He loved His Father. Fundamentally, first and foremost, it was out of love for God. And praise God that that's the case because in order for anyone to have eternal life, you must love God perfectly in order to have eternal life. You must keep the law of God perfectly. And Jesus did that. He loved God. He kept His commandments. He fulfilled all righteousness. The first table of the law, loving God. The second table, loving others. He did that, dear believer, for you. And He offered up Himself as a sacrifice, a spotless, sinless sacrifice. The Lamb of God to take away your sins. Also, in terms of His dwelling place, He knew God. He knew God. The end of verse 14, I will set Him on high because He has known My name. And you see what He did with that knowledge. The end of verse 4. God's truth, that is, God's faithfulness, shall be His shield and buckler. Jesus did not simply study the Scriptures. Now, of course, as God, He knew it all, but He did grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man as a human being. And He did study the Scriptures. And He did hide God's Word in His heart that He might not sin. And insofar as he studied the Scriptures and gained insight into the knowledge of God revealed therein, the fact of the matter is, he used that knowledge for practical godliness. It was not merely an obsession with intellectual categories and distinctions. Jesus learned those things. We see in Isaiah 50, uh, he had the tongue of the learned. So he had the learning... Uh, Morning by morning, he was instructed by God through the Scriptures and through prayer and meditation. And then he had the tongue of the learned to speak a word in season to those who are weary. So he used his knowledge to minister to others. And he used his knowledge of God's character. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. How does he fend off against the devil in the wilderness? He uses God's faithfulness. He uses the truth of God's Word. But if you take truth here to be God's faithfulness, he quotes passages, at least in the case of turning stones into bread, he quotes a passage that says, God is faithful. God will feed me when He's ready to feed me. I'm not going to deviate from my course of service by turning these stones into bread. He knew God. He knew God intimately. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, there's an amazing statement here which surely has some reference to his divine nature as well, but Matthew eleven twenty five, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And listen, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the One whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus, as God and as man, knew God. Knew the nature, the character of God. Knew the character of His heavenly Father. And He knew it so that He might reveal it unto us insofar as we need it to equip us for every good work. And I think it's interesting that if we think of this, in, this theme here in those verses in Matthew 11 of Jesus knowing the Father and revealing the knowledge of the Father, doesn't that add a further layer of meaning and comfort and even exhortation to the following verses. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, I know the Father. And if you come to me, not only will I take away your sin and take away the burden of guilt, all of those things are true, but there's an emphasis here as well that He knows the Father, He reveals the Father, and we ought to come to Him to learn these things from Him. This is a passage that says something about the study of theology. It says something about the, the, the beauty and the rest and the peace that is available to us in studying the Word of God, coming to Jesus and learning from Him the knowledge of God. He's gentle, He's lowly, He's patient, he teaches and instructs us morning by morning in the knowledge of God. He knew God. And he knew God because he was constantly in the secret place of the Most High. That was his dwelling place. Now secondly, we consider uh, his deliverance. We've seen his dwelling place, now we consider his deliverance. Verse 3, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. There were a lot of people out to get Jesus. They were chasing him around. They were hunting him down from the beginning to the end. You think of King Herod trying to hunt him down in Bethlehem and kill all the infants of a certain age. Uh, Jesus as the greater Moses experiencing something similar to what Moses experienced as well in, in his infancy. But the, the fact of the matter is, that there were fowlers, hunters, people chasing Jesus down, trying to get Him, trying to kill Him uh, with every fiber of their being. But it says that He'll be delivered. And it goes on, as we've considered in recent sermons, all these different promises of safety and security and deliverance. And so first we see His deliverance from death. And here we're not thinking yet of the resurrection but we're thinking of His deliverance from death. In other words, people were trying to kill Him and God protected Him from those attacks for a period of time leading up to the, the moment of His hour of suffering. As we said of the believer, so we say of Christ, He was invincible in His path of service. Until the hour came for Him to suffer and die for His people, He was invincible in His path of service. Nothing could stop him. When he preached in Nazareth, he preached a convicting sermon. He rebuked the people in his hometown and they didn't like it. 
They, they enjoyed his gracious words. They were amazed at his teaching, but they were offended. And they ran him out of the synagogue and tried to throw him off the side of a hill. But the Lord protected him. He escaped, snuck his way through the crowd to, to, be, to, to safety. Uh, it was impossible that he should die prior to his hour. And this is a major theme If you've read through John's Gospel, you see this time and time again. John 7, verse 30. Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as He taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on Him for His hour had not yet come. Uh, we know even the, the Pharisees and Sadducees had gotten together in Matthew 26. They come together, they hire Judas, and they say, we're going to arrest him. We're going to kill him. But not at the feast. Not at the feast. So it works on the other side as well, right? They're wanting to kill him now, but it's not the hour. And, and now they're saying in Matthew 26, we're going to kill him later. Not at the feast. Oh yes, at the feast. Oh yes, at the feast. You see, the hour, the timing of Christ's suffering and death was appointed, the fullness of time from all eternity. His enemies could not determine that for themselves. And every time they tried, they failed. And yet in John's Gospel, you see this heightening emphasis as you get through the book that His hour is looming and eventually it comes. John 12, verse 23 The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, so on and so forth. He says, the hour has now arrived. My death is at hand. Chapter 13, verse 1. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He says something similar at the beginning of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And he tells Pilate in John 19 that if God hadn't given you the power to crucify me, you'd have no power over me. You'd have absolutely no power. This is the will of God. Jesus could have even called down 12 legions of angels. No, he willingly submits. Now is the time. Now is the hour. But until that point, he was delivered from death. And no evil could befall him. No plague could come near his dwelling before that point. The angels were charged over him to keep him in all his ways. Their hands bore him up, lest he would dash his foot against a stone. Until it was the time for him to tread Satan underfoot at the cross. Uh, a beautiful picture of this in Psalm 91, but it's also His deliverance in death. His deliverance in death. Verse 15, He shall call upon Me and I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. Notice here the promise to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of His trouble, in the midst of His suffering and affliction and death. The promise is, that God will answer him and be with him. This is very important. In fact, there are certain passages of the Scriptures that speak of the death of Christ that we're not going to understand rightly 
if we don't understand these two sides of the coin. The way in which Jesus is delivered in death is that God would answer him and be with him. And I think the significance here is that God would be with him by answering him. The way in which God would be with him during his suffering and death upon the cross was that he would hear and answer the prayers that he was praying. Because, of course, we know from Psalm 22, which Jesus cried out on the cross, uh, verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Uh, verse 2, oh God, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. So there's a sense in which Jesus was abandoned on the cross. In this sense, that on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was deprived of the felt sense of God's comforting presence, even as the wicked in hell are deprived of God's comfortable presence, as our larger catechism says. It's not that the Father was disconnected from the person of the Son within the Trinitarian Godhead or something like that. That's heresy. And it's not as though the Father didn't look upon His perfect obedience unto death with acceptance and love because then we wouldn't be saved at all. John 10 says He loved Him because He gave His life up for the sheep. But in this sense, he turned his back upon him and denied him the comfortable sense of his presence, therefore pouring out upon him one major aspect of eternal punishment in hell. And yet the fact of the matter is, Jesus by faith continued to pray. Imagine someone praying in the fires of hell where there's no sense of hope, no indication of hope, outwardly speaking, no feeling of hope, no sense of hope. The only feeling, the only stimuli is of abandonment and they pray in hell. It's not happening in hell, friends, but it happened on the cross. Bearing hell for us, the Lord Jesus Christ continued to pray, continued to cry out, knowing that God had the power to deliver him from death, had the power to receive His Spirit when He gave up the ghost, had the power to forgive His adversaries, had the power to receive the dying thief, had the power to do all of these things, and He knew that He would be heard. And Psalm 22 goes on, verse 24, for He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him, but when He cried to Him, He heard And the rest of the psalm fleshes out the answer to that prayer. But Jesus was heard. God was with him in a way, by way of hearing and answering his prayer. We already read it in Hebrews 5, verse 7, uh, but it bears repeating that in the days of his flesh he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, that, that is, hear his prayer, and as we'll see in a moment, raise him from the dead. And he was heard because of his godly fear. God was with him in the sense that he heard his prayers and in due time received his spirit and on the third day raised him from the dead. And that brings us to his deliverance after death. You can see in our psalm, verses 15 and 16, 
that flowing out of that time of trouble that we're told, I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and will show him my salvation. This implies far more than the resurrection, as we'll see in a moment, but at the very least, the long life is a reference to the resurrection. Jesus raised from the dead as our heavenly high priest who who intercedes for us with the power of an endless life. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches concerning this glorious message and glorious news of the resurrection which created in his soul, following his denial of the Lord, created in his soul uh, a living, a new and living hope, as he says in his epistle. Restored all of his hopes. Acts 2, verse 24, says of Christ, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. That word pains refers to childbearing pains. This is telling us that Jesus was delivered. He was delivered in much the same way a child is delivered. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, the Scripture says. And and God delivered Him, brought Him forth out of the tomb as the firstborn among the dead, the firstfruits from the dead as a token and indication of the resurrection of all of His believing people at the last day whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death. Yes, pains of death. Birth birth pains that led to great joy. Because it was not possible that He should be held by it. Uh, Those birth pains were going to come on time on the third day. And that bundle of joy was coming forth. The joy set before Him. The resurrection of Christ. It was not possible for death to hold Him because He conquered death through His death on the cross, and He rose up for our justification. And I love the, the picture that we have. I, I probably mention this far too often, but humor me for a moment. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. Here's this angel sent by God to move that massive stone placed at the mouth of the tomb by the Roman Empire, sealed with their insignia. Don't touch it. Don't move it. Uh, the greatest act of civil disobedience in human history, the angel moves the stone, opens the way, and Christ is delivered as the firstborn from the dead, and the angel just sits on top of that stone as a testimony of the victory of God and His kingdom, even of Jesus Christ Himself over death, and the, the, the soldiers are quivering and lying in the dust, stupefied by the power of God raising His Son from the dead. And there's the angel uh, of all the angels that were charged um, to prevent uh, Jesus from being harmed by a stone. Um, I think he had the best gig of all. Uh, He moved that stone far out of the way. Jesus didn't trip over it. He didn't dash His foot upon it. He walked out victoriously. Our risen Savior 
risen again in testimony of our own victorious resurrection at the last day. So much for His deliverance. Thirdly, His reward of dignity. His reward of dignity. Having been delivered, Jesus is exalted. And that's what we see at the end of Psalm 91. I will deliver Him and honor Him. If you go to the previous verse, verse 14, I will set Him on high. So having been delivered from death, having been raised from the dead, Jesus Christ is exalted. He's exalted. I will set Him on high. Now, to some extent we see that and we think, well, is that a reference to the cross? On the cross, Jesus was lifted up so that He would draw all men unto Himself. He was lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness that if we would simply look to Him by faith, all of our sins would be forgiven and we would be right in the sight of God. I don't think it's referring to that, but when we think of Him being exalted and raised up, understand it's indelibly connected to His death and His suffering. Philippians 2 tells us that in fact the honor and the dignity and the exaltation that He received was on account of His suffering and on account of His death. This death whereby He crushed the serpent's head, whereby He trampled Satan underfoot and made an open spectacle of the kingdom of darkness, this paved the way. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 9, having spoken of His death, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him. He set Him on high and given Him the name which is above every name. He's given Him honor. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is at the heart of the New Testament message. My friends, if we have faith, this is at the heart of our everyday life. Our life is hid with Christ in God and He is exalted to God's right hand. And we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and that's how we run the race set before us. We don't run the race looking down at the ground. We don't run the race focusing on things here below with unbelief, with blindness and slumber and worldliness that that just gums up the works. We look to Jesus. Hebrews 1, verse 3. We're told... When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Set Him on high. Honor Him above every name that is named in heaven and earth. And it goes on to say, I will satisfy Him with long life and show Him my salvation. Now what do you think that means? What is it saying I will satisfy him with long life. Well, understand this cannot be a reference to his divine nature. As God, he's ever blessed in himself. He doesn't need to be satisfied. As God, he is life itself. He doesn't need long life. In fact, he's outside of time. There's no category of duration with God. This is speaking of Jesus in his humanity as our mediator. That as a reward for His saving work, 
God will satisfy him with long life. In other words, he will ever live to intercede for us. As I've said multiple times, he'll be our high priest through the power of an endless life. This passage is referring to the fact that everything Jesus did for us, even through every aspect of his exaltation, is for us and on our behalf. We must understand this. It's not merely Jesus is exalted to God's right hand and He's ruling and reigning. Yes, but we're seated with Him in heavenly places. He has done it for us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. He's ascended so that one day we'll meet Him in the air and ever be with the Lord. And you see this theme throughout the Old Testament. Uh, We don't have time, but read Psalm 21 sometime. The first four verses there. Uh, where it promises that this messianic king, uh, that he asked life from you and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. Jesus asked that not for himself, but for us. That in him we might have life. And what satisfies him, the joy that's set before him, that satisfies him, that, that is the labor and the wages for all that he's done on our behalf, what, what he's looking to, what God is showing him to satisfy him, is that we receive that eternal life in him. It's his people. God shows him the salvation of his people. The language here is so similar to Isaiah chapter 53, it's unmistakable. Isaiah 53.10 When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. In other words, God's going to show him the salvation of his people. He shall prolong his days. God will give him an endless life, a long life. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, his saving work will bring delight to God and delight to the heart of Christ. He shall see the labor of his soul, everything he's worked for, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. What is it that satisfies the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is to justify many by imparting to them a knowledge of who He is. God shows him that saving work as it's manifested in the life of His people. It is the joy set before Him that He will be reveling in for all eternity. When the believer is ushered into heaven, God says, enter into the joy of your Lord. Jesus is rejoicing. Jesus is rejoicing at the saving fruit of His finished work. And he's doing that as a reflection of the character of God. My friends, when you come to this table and you come to this feast of love and you're meditating that Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you, that he's satisfied when he looks at what what he has done for you and how you've been saved and how he's shown mercy to you and how he's sanctifying you with all of your unworthiness, with all of your failures and sins, yet he looks upon you and he looks upon what he's going to do for you in eternity. He looks upon the full scope of the fruit of his death and resurrection in your life and he is satisfied and he is delighting in mercy. And that is a reflection not merely of Jesus of Nazareth, but of God Himself. I'm going to close with this. 
Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. We're told that uh, verse 17, the enemies of God shall lick the dust like a serpent. We just can't, can't get away from that language, can we? The victory of Christ. But verse 18, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. My friends, I want you to listen to this one more time. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? The end of verse 18, because He delights in mercy. Do you believe that? Those of you who have taken time to meditate on your own sin and and to to ask the Lord to convict you, and you've found lists of sins. you've, You've wrestled with your prayerlessness. You've wrestled with your pride. You've wrestled with your neglect of seeking the Lord as you ought. You've wrestled with your unclean words your misuse of your time, and especially the Sabbath. You've wrestled with the lack of contentment and seeking after the treasures and pleasures of this world. You've wrestled with hidden sins and commitments that you've made to the Lord. I'll repent and I'm going to work on this. And then the next sacrament comes around, you examine yourself and you haven't made hardly any progress and you're going round and round and spinning your wheels and you're overwhelmed. Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips. And this passage comes to you. And it says, He delights in mercy. It satisfies His soul to give you eternal life. It satisfies the heart of the Savior and the heart of God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to look upon your salvation. To see it. To rejoice over it. To delight in justifying the ungodly and casting your sin away as far as the east is from the west and welcoming you to His table of blessing. Let's pray. O God in heaven, we ask Your blessing upon Your Word as it has been read and sung and preached. And even so, we ask Your blessing upon the visible Word of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that it would feed our hungry souls with Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen, and ascended. We ask in His name. Amen.